Well done, Rachel, with all those names. I may say them differently. I'm not sure I'm right if I say them. So um, this uh, passage references Elijah's cloak, sometimes called as a mantle. And so I want to start off by talking about uh, clergy clothes, clergy, clergy robes and such. So I have a bit of a history with this. I was ordained in a denomination that, that kind of had a little more liturgical emphasis than we do here at, at East Glenville. And so I have a, 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 a pastor's robe, a clergy robe, that I, I probably had a morning in a couple of years. But, uh, and then um, in addition, I have what's called stoles. Stoles just like you stole something. But these are things that go over the robe, and it goes something like this. So I didn't bring my robe; that's too bulky. But so I, at times I have worn a robe and a, a stole as a preacher. Um, I I served in a church where the the new pastor came in, and I was the associate, and he was very much a liturgical tradition guy. And it was important, and so he, he wanted me to uh, wear those garments and such, uh, fitting my status. And so I kind of, but I also learned a lot from him about the meaning of it. And it's interesting, I, I started to appreciate the symbolism, the idea of the robe is that you have been set apart as a pastor for this special role within the congregation. And that's, that's what it is. You, you've got God's hands upon you. And that's a symbol of that. And then the stole represents, in a sense, the burden of, of ministry, of God's call to serve within a group of people. And so when I was at that church, um, you know, the stole was placed on me at my ordination service. And then when I left there to, to start at a new church, he, kind of symbolically, he had me go up to the altar, and I put my stole on the altar as a symbol that I have, in a sense, released from the burden of this congregation, and the idea is that I would take it up again when I got to the church where I was starting. And uh, so that idea of the stole as, as a symbol, as a picture of taking on the, 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 that burden, that, that weight of, of ministry. And so I was thinking about that. Suppose, for a minute, suppose for a minute, you know, the burden of ministry just becomes too much. You know, and it's just the weight upon me, and I just, I get to the point where I just don't think I can do it anymore, and, um, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know, you know, now this is hypothetical, I love what I'm doing. <laughs> God, you know, I, the peace of God in my heart. Um, but imagine I, I see, you know, this word, I see a group of teenagers who are all standing and talking amongst themselves. And I think, what can I do? How can I do I, I just can't handle this anymore. And I feel like, you know, maybe they're even looking that way. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, they're all just kind of doing their thing. And I think, you know, and they're all looking that way, as he said. And, um, 
And they keep you know, looking that way. They keep looking that way. So I decide I'm going to dump this on someone else. And so I just go like that. And then I run away. <laughs> you know, does that mean, you know, Alan is the next guy in charge? Like, does that sort of transfer all the burden to him? So thank you guys. That's all I need you for. You can go back and hide up the balcony as you normally do. <laughs> I do that because you'll see as we get there, something like that happens in our passage today. We've been talking about how Elijah felt the burden of, of the, the calling of God's life. That he was the, the lone prophet standing for Yahweh against all the, the forces that were leading Israel in the wrong direction. And, and he, got, he felt so overwhelmed, he got, fell into a, a depression fell into discouragement. And so he fled Israel. And God then sent him on a journey to Mount Sinai. Um, and it's there, we talked last week about how he experienced God's power and presence, that God has to restore his, his prophet to, to, to regain, help him regain himself. And so Elijah on the mountain learns that God is in control of the most powerful forces, the wind. He sees a windstorm, an earthquake, a forest fire. All of those, God, at God's direction. But as the text made clear, we looked at last week, God was not in those forces. It's only when a gentle whisper comes that Elijah then hears the voice of God. That God comes as a gentle whisper, and then he gives Elijah instructions on, on what to do next, on what the plan is. And so that leads us up to the, the text that we, we started today. I know I'm, I've recapped it. it. The story just keeps going on. You almost have to, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go listen to it just to catch all the different nuances. There's so many things. Um, but Elijah has this conversation with God, and God begins by asking him, you know, Elijah, what are you doing here? What's going on? And Elijah spells out the, the situation. I've been very jealous, or I think it should be translated zealous, that captures it. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the people have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And you can see why Elijah fell into depression. And I think you get a little hint of it here that he's worried for his own life, his own sake. But I think the majority of what it is, is not about himself per se. He sees everything going the wrong direction. Right? He's, he's looking at his nation and his people. And he sees them making bad choices. He, he looks at the leaders of the people and feeling like it's, it's all wrong. Um, he's worried about where things are going. Can you relate to that idea? You ever like turn on the news and you just want to fall into a depression, you know, and, and hide away? Like things, we can look at them and feel like everything's going wrong. And I think that's part of what's going on in Elijah's heart. And that's why God had to address him. Um, so God first assured him of his power and presence. And now, God is going to give him specific answers about how things are going to go. So then we get to all the fun names. 
So the Lord said to him, go and return on your way toward Damascus. And then he's to do three things. Uh, he's to anoint. They will anoint Hazael as the king of Syria. Um, Jehu as the king of Israel. And Elisha to be the next prophet. But, but as part of that, God emphasizes one thing. Know this. I know it feels like you're the only one left, but you're not. There are others, 7,000 whose knees have not bowed to Baal. I know who they are. I have things under control. And here's what we're going to do. So uh, those instructions are given to Elijah about what will happen next. And then it goes straight to him passing on the mantle, his cloak, to Elisha. What about the two kings? In fact, we see the text does not tell us that Elijah ever goes to those two kings to do what God had said. And even, he doesn't actually anoint Elisha in our text, it's just he puts his cloak on him. And, and so I've been trying to figure this out all Seriously, like I've been trying to, what, what's, how do we understand this? And I've come up with three options. One is that Elijah does do it. It's just not recorded in the passage. And that he secretly anoints these, these two men that are mentioned to be the next kings. Um, it just doesn't mention it in the passage. But, but here's the problem. It's, it's going to be more than 30 years before they become kings. A whole generational pass. So I don't know if that's right, but that's one possibility. The other is, and I've heard this suggestion, that Elijah, Elijah actually disobeys God. God intends him to go anoint these, these men. And he says, well, that's too much. I'm just going to do the Elisha thing. And he focuses on just one part. But I think there's a third option. Is that, and this is, this is kind of where that Elijah did as God intended. The, the mention of the next kings is a future aspiration. Um, and as I was trying to figure this out, I I, need to, I I don't know Hebrew very well, so I called someone who did. And so I, I talked to I don't know if you all know Perlene Cooper. She's she's a she's a member here, but she also is a pastor of a Mal, Malagasy church in New York, and she also teaches Hebrew. So I said, Perlene, what can you tell me about the Hebrew verbs for anoint? Is that given as a command? Or is it given as, as a future thing? And so she clarified it, that, that the, the word go, when God says go, return to your people, that is a command. That's in the tense that says that it's go do this. But when it talks about the anointing, it's in the future tense. Because when we read you shall, that sounds like a command to me. But in Hebrew, it's it's more like you, you will. Now, what I think it means, and as you look further in, it's not Elijah who will be the one that anoints these kings. Elisha will do it 30 years later. What God is saying is, I have a plan to deal with the, 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 what's going on. And it involves these kings. They will be the ones. And in fact, if you go, if you jump way ahead to 2 Kings 8, 9, and 10, 
Hazael will attack Israel. He will be part of what, what takes down the those who are worshiping Baal. And then the Jehu will also overthrow the, the family of Ahab. That, that, that God has a plan to deal with the problem that is going on amongst the nation. God has the right and he has the plan to decide who's the next king. So I, I turn to Isaiah 40. And this is a later prophet. He says, he, says, he says this, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has this, their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God sets who are the government authorities, the leaders, the kings, the princes. And God will take care of the running the government or the foreign threats. The Lord would not have his people living in anxiety over the, the news like that. Um, that God will deal with that. What about Elijah? What's he supposed to do? His focus is on one thing. Elisha. Who will be the next prophet? His role was to pass on what he has learned to Elijah, that he does do what he says he will do. And so he's focused on the ministry of the prophet. So that's why after he's given this, what does he do? He goes straight to Elijah and he travels to Maribdahola um, or something, whatever that is. And he sees him. And it's there. He, he sees Elisha. Now here's what we find out. Elisha's a farmer. And he's, he's actually working the plow with the oxen, dragging the plow. And what's interesting is it says he's the 12th in a line of plowmen. So the community is working together to plow the fields. And he can see them going along. And somehow Elijah knows by God's spirit that, that Elisha is the one that he should be focusing on. And so this is just totally crazy how he does this. So he sees Elisha as the 12th in a long line of people running the plow. And it says, Elijah passed by him. He went up to him and he takes his cloak and puts it on Elisha as he is doing the plow work. And then Elijah keeps walking, right? He keeps going on. Elisha has to catch up to him later. Like, I think Elijah is thinking, I'm done. Right? I am. I think he's like, I'm going to take this and I'm going to dump it on this guy. I'm out of here. You know? And so his vision is to hand off and, and not look back. And the interesting thing is, is Elisha um, is ready to sign on. So, I mean, imagine you're Elisha. All of a sudden, you've got this cloak, and it's a symbol of the prophetic ministry of Elijah. And you got it, you're like looking at this like, okay, what do I do with this? <laughs> and then you look and you see Elijah walking the other way. It says he, he parked the, the ox 
and he ran after Elijah, and he goes up to him and says, um, hey, hey, can, can I say goodbye to mom and dad first? Right? Like, he's willing to do it. He's willing to take this on. But he says, let, let me go say goodbye to mom and dad, and I will follow you. Right? I'm not ready for this. I'll follow you, though. I'll learn from you. You can show me how to do it. I'll go with you. And then Elijah's answer is very curious. Nobody says. Um, he says, go back again for what have I done to you? I mean, is, is he suddenly realizing, oh, what have I done to this poor young guy? Right? What kind of burden have I placed on him? What have I done to you? You know, is he giving Elisha an out? Saying, oh, forget it, just, just go back. Or is he saying, you know, say goodbye and let's go. But, I mean, as I read this, I'm not totally sure what Elijah's thinking. I think he is giving Elisha an out. But Elisha doesn't want the out. Instead, what does he do? He takes that ox and he breaks up the, the plow, uses the wood to make a fire. He sacrifices the ox and has a community feast. Instead of um, being a farmer, he's now going to be a prophet in training. And he's gonna have, they're going to have a community feast to celebrate his new status. And there's no going back. He has now given up his means of farming. So Elisha is willing and he's ready. Um, but he can't do it unless Elijah is willing to, to train him. To take him on. Or the word we sometimes would use would be disciple. And so that's what he does. He spends the next few years following Elijah with him, assisting him and, and learning from him. Elijah's ministry is not done. Elijah still had work to do. And, and so um, Elisha does become the next prophet, but not for many years yet. And so Elisha's main work is taking this young man and passing on the faith. And here's what I wonder. We, you know, the church nowadays, do we, do we think a lot about, well, our world is going the wrong direction. And there's so many things going wrong and we see all this bad stuff. And we're like, how can we fix it? How can we get the, our society to change direction? How can we, you know, how can we get the right kind of leaders in place so that we're, um, so that we're okay and, and they'll protect the church and they'll, you know, we think a lot about that. And I wonder if God's answer to us is the same as Elijah. Don't worry about the government. Don't worry about the foreign prince. Focus on making a disciple. Focus on investing in maybe just one person and helping them learn how to follow Jesus with you. You want to do something for your nation? That's the best thing you can do. The answer is not in political involvement or, um, you know, rallying the people. The answer is passing on our faith one by one. Isn't that what we see in passages like Matthew 4? Isn't that what Jesus did? So um, there's three passages, I think, that relate to this. One of them is, is in Matthew 4, when Jesus was starting off 
what did, what did he do? He, go, he went to, you know, not farmers, but fishermen. Right? Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And what do they do? They, like Elisha, they leave behind their net, nets and their boat, and they begin to follow Jesus. What's Jesus' plan for changing the world? He focused on a few men and taught them what it meant to, to live, how to live life. He, did, he made them into his disciples. That was his plan. That was the, it wasn't to fix the Roman Empire by, by overthrowing the emperor. It was to disciple a few. Discipling someone um, involves investing your time and energy into them. Just like Jesus did his disciples. It's, it's not just teaching them certain you know, doctrines and well, I do this. It's about investing your life. In 1 Thessalonians 2, the other second passage I want to highlight. Paul is talking about how we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God. So he did share the gospel. He did share the message. He did talk about the things in the Bible, right? The, the things they needed to hear. But we, we share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. He, he invested. Paul's saying we invested our lives in you. And, and uh, let me read it. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. It goes on to say, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father does, deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. What would it look like for you to invest in the life of another person? To help them grow and and walk with God to live a life worthy of, of, of Jesus Christ. When I think about who invested in my life, um, who, who spent time with me, I think about a lot of people along the way of me becoming a pastor, right, that I learned from. But actually what came to mind as I thought about this um, in the last few days was a, a young family named Joe and Liz Baca. When I was what I, what I call BC, uh, before Cheryl. So in my BC days, um, when I was a young guy living in, Cheryl's my wife for those of you. Um, when I was a, a young guy living in a small town, and there was a, a family, they, they basically had me over for dinner every Sunday night, almost every Sunday night for years. You know, I'd go, we, we had a small group Bible study in their house at times, but even when they didn't, I still ended up eating there. And uh, they had younger kids, sometimes I'd wrestle with their kids and uh, and talk with them. But mostly, I just watched what they were doing. I watched how they cared for their kids, and I, I you know, I shared what was going on for me. They, they listened to me, they spent time with me, they, you know, they shared some of the stuff they're doing. Um, Liz would cook these very healthy meals. She was very health focused. And then it was okay because on the way home was an ice cream place and I just I just did it all. But uh, but I tell you what, I learned more about being a Christian parent in in those things than I did from any James Dobson book. Right? 
What if we did that? Invested in the lives of others and invested in, in learning from others in finding the, the, the things that they've learned about following Christ. That's, I believe, what we're called to do. Matthew 28, the end of the third passage, Jesus gathers his disciples. It's after the resurrection. And really the last thing he says to them, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? He's the one put in charge. And here's the thing. He has a plan. Right? He has a plan. What's the plan? Go. Just like Elijah told to go. Right? Go and make disciples. Teach people what I taught you. Teach them how. Don't just teach them about stuff in general. Teach them how to put it into practice in your life. How do you do that? One-on-one. It's not just having classes, though there's time for classes. It, it's, it's how you invest in people's lives. Um, invest in them that they might become followers of Christ. Now, I have a question. Is this work just given for pastors? The correct answer is no. It's, it's, it's on all of us, right? Maybe I could train someone to be another pastor, but I don't know how to train someone to be an engineer or a teacher or a nurse as a follower of Jesus Christ. Like, it's something given to all of us to invest in people's lives like this. At East Glenville, our, our, our little mantra, we are learning to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. We want to create room for those kind of relationships within the church. Now, I thought about, like, what's our strategy? We've been talking a lot lately about what's our strategy for making disciples. We, we don't necessarily have this big program. Right? We, we do things that will help people learn. We have Sunday school, and that's, that's huge. And junior church, and we have other classes to help people grow and learn. But we don't have this massive program about making disciples. Because it's about relationships. It's, it happens more organically as we, we speak into one another's lives. The question is, do we make room in our life for these kind of relationships? Or do we get so focused on other things that we forget to do this? So, who invested in your life? And that in a way that spurred you towards following Christ as a disciple? Who, who discipled you? Who invested in your life in that way? And then, lastly, what would it look like for you? All of us are in a different situation, but what would it look like for you to pass the mantle on to someone else, to invest in their lives, and to help them learn what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Let me pray.